Hi, everybody. This is Gary Sandy, and thank you very much for listening to the WKRP cast. So just sit right down, relax, open your ears real wide, and say... Weather today in the greater Cincinnati area. Are you awake? Whoa! Are you awake now? But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. Say what? Dear God, she's going to kill us all. Welcome to the WKRP cast, a deep dive rewatch podcast, spending time with America's favorite radio station, WKRP in Cincinnati. My name is Alan Stair. And I'm his wife, Donna. This is a week-by-week, episode-by-episode rewatch. We're getting into the trivia, the characters, and the details that have made WKRP one of America's favorite syndicated sitcoms for nearly 40 years. So, fellow babies, don't touch that dial. It's time for the WKRP cast. I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. Welcome back to the WKRP cast. We've got a fun one today. Let's get right to it. Donna, what are we talking about today? We are talking about the contest nobody could win. The air date was the 29th of January, 1979. Written by Hugh Wilson and Casey Petrowski. Story editors Tom Chihak, Bill Dial, Blake Hunter, and Emily Marshall. And it was directed by Asad Kalada. Johnny causes considerable drama at the station when he accidentally announces a contest prize of $5,000 instead of $50. We've opened a can of worms. (laughs) Well, actually, a guy named Roy Penny opened this can of worms in 2015. Uh, Roy has kind of handed it over to us. Roy's blog, WKRP Relived, was an episode-by-episode rewatch of the Shot Factory discs in written form. Roy did in a blog what we're doing in a podcast. Roy wrote us just a few weeks ago, telling us that his most popular blog post was the one he did about the two different endings for this episode, the contest nobody could win. Now, actually, I'd already found Roy's blog over the summer, and we've been using it as part of our research materials. Roy was shaking the same bush as we've been shaking back when he was writing his blog, so his research is very solid. His research is so solid, if you Google, why are there two endings to the WKRP episode contest nobody could win, the first entry that comes up is Roy's blog post. Now, we've dubbed the two endings, Johnny Saves the Day and Johnny Has to Pay. The version where Johnny retrieves the briefcase full of cash, Johnny Saves the Day, that's the version that most people know. It was the version that aired on the network and the one that went out in syndication packages in the 80s and the 90s. It's the one we all know from watching it over and over in syndication. It's also the one included on the 2007 Fox Season 1 DVD. The other version, Johnny Has to Pay didn't come to light until the 2014 release of the Shout Factory boxed DVD series. The Shout Factory wanted the earliest source tapes for every episode. They didn't realize the first set of source tapes for this episode contained an entirely different ending. This episode is really one and a half episodes. At about the 16-minute mark, It splits into two different endings. Amazingly, a lot of people know about this, but no one seems to know why. 
Now, Roy has a great theory in his blog post, but we wanted some answers. We reached out to the gentleman named Casey, and how do you pronounce that last name again? It's correctly pronounced as Piotrowski. I have always just, it just flows better as Piotrowski. The guy whose name's right there at the start of the show. That's right. We talked to Casey Petrowski, writer of The Contest Nobody Could Win. Thanks to WKRP cast listener Jamie Schmidt for tipping us to the fact that Mr. P was on Facebook. He is currently an adjunct professor of theater and media at Cerritos Community College in Norwalk, California. We zoomed away an afternoon with Professor Casey, talking WKRP, television production, the state of radio, and much more. He's a funny and interesting guy. We will be including his comments throughout this episode. One of the trivia tidbits we always see is that this episode was written by a, quote, DJ working in Cincinnati. That's close, but the timing is a little different, isn't it, Casey? I was a disc jockey in Cincinnati at a station called WSAI. Gannett owned the radio station. They bought the Cincinnati Inquirer. They made more money with that than with us, so they sold us off. New ownership led to new management, which led to new personnel, and I was one of the old personnel, so I was pushed out the door. That was in early 1977. I moved out here in the middle of 77, and uh, while I was out here, I'd seen something in the newspaper about a a TV series that CBS had picked up. I'm assuming it's sometime after CBS committed to the series in late spring of 78. It was a a show called WKRP in Cincinnati. And then I read an interview not long after that with Hugh Wilson, where he was talking about, you know, what he was going to call the series and said, and by the way, you probably know this, but WKRP, the KRP was, was short for crap. Once in L.A., Casey said he dropped a letter to Hugh Wilson, and in it, he dropped some names of notable Cincinnati media types. It must have made him credible enough for Hugh to reach out. I got a phone call from his administrative assistant who said, we're going to have a get-together with a bunch of new writers, and we'd like you to come down and and watch, uh, be a part of it. So I went down there, and they were like, 20 writers or pairs of writers there. And they showed us two episodes of the series they did, they'd already shot. And basically they just wanted us to get a feel for the vibe of the show and the characters. And after we watched the two episodes, they said, okay, we want you guys to go home and think up some ideas for shows and then call, call back, make an appointment, pitch them to us. So I spent the next week, and I think I was unemployed at that time, pretty sure of I was only working part-time at that, at that point. And I um, spent a week coming up with ideas, and I came up with 22 of them. One of those ideas caught Casey's imagination to the point he put in some extra work before the pitch, and it paid off. What I wanted to do, you know, they had to uh, identify a song, mystery song. So what I did was, being a radio guy, I found five songs that if you took an excerpt from each one, would spell out WKRP. So I recorded those at the college I had worked at at that point. And uh, physically, I was good at uh, editing tape, edited them together into WKRP, then dubbed that onto a cassette. And I went into the pitch with that on a cassette. And, and as I pitched the other ideas, when I got to that one, I plugged in the cassette player. And that was the one that intrigued them the most, I think, because I brought, came in with the extra production that I came in with the, the cassette player. If you aren't getting five out of that, he's meaning double then you, then KRP. 
Getting the producers to take the contest idea was just the start of the process. I have a distant memory that I had to go back down to KTLA to their offices and they described what they wanted me to do. And basically they wanted an outline and a script. They wanted the outline first, I believe. Gave them the outline and they detailed it and gave it back to me. I went back then and uh, with their notes, uh, wrote the script. I spent the entire week writing the script. I didn't do anything else but write the script. Then after getting the script written... Time to wait. So then I heard from them a couple of weeks later and said, we want to buy your show. And by the way, that is a copy of the script. Oh, wow. Yeah. What's, what's the date on there? What, uh, production date apparently was December the 8th, 1978. And huge bonus, Casey has an extra copy of the shooting script, which he's sending to us. We will post pictures to our Facebook page. So the night of December 8th, Oh, it must have been great, right? I was not there when they shot the show. It was, it was Hugh Wilson's assistant that was supposed to call and tell me that I was there. And my Hugh told me this after the fact. On the taping day, they say, and, and the writer of this episode is Casey Petrowski. And I'm not there. And everybody's applauding, oh, no. apparently. And I'm not there. And Hugh apologized copiously for me. So I, don't, I never saw the show being taped. So what happened on the night of December 8th, 1978? Well, they shot the version of contest we like to call Johnny Has to Pay. Now, the two versions are the same to start with, so let's get into it. Starting with scene one, we're in the studio, and Johnny is on the air, and of course, he's asleep in his chair. And he's playing some noise, man. That is uh, <laughs> that is a real song you thought the record was skipping. I did. I said, you know, he's <laughs> sleeping, and the record's skipping. Oh, my gosh. No, nah, that's a tune called Suction Prince from Captain Beefheart, which is, uh, Captain Beefheart is the stage name of a guy named Don Glenn Vlayette who is a nut. Don is more performance artist than he is rock star. (laughs) And the album was, as Johnny said, Shiny Beast, Back Chain Puller. But if you see it in print, it is Shiny Beast, and then in parentheses, Bat Chain Puller. Whatever a bat, B-A-T, chain is, that is the name of that album. So uh, if you want to find some beef art, you go right ahead, but we're not going to be playing any on here. A little gentle wake-up music there for you. Johnny announces that it's 8.25 on a Wednesday morning. The streets of Cincinnati are deserted. The police suspect foul play. He starts an ad about Hutchins Community Hospital. Well, that's when Andy comes in. It's 8.25 in the morning, and seemingly no one else is in at the station. When do they start working around there? I don't know. Yeah, Andy's got this bright green, shiny windbreaker on, and we caught the look at a logo on the back of it, but we could not make it out and we tried we did we We were freezing it and (laughs) i wish there was a way we could zoom in on it but we didn't know what that logo was but the jacket woo, bright green so andy's checking to make sure johnny's cool on the new contest oh no i got your memo all about it and i've been plugging it since i went on and then johnny's very curious about how andy got carlson to break free with the prize money for the contest And in true uh, everybody's misunderstanding, everybody KRP fashion, nobody says a number here. They just talk about how impressed they are with the prize money. And Andy told Carlson, he explains to Johnny, Andy says that he read an article in one of the trade magazines, and it was a psychologist who drew a parallel between a station manager's contest budget and his virility. So he gave you a blank check. So Johnny's thinking, sure, you could get 
get that funded uh, using that approach. So nobody ever said a number. Andy leaves the studio. Johnny sits back down, and there's a spot playing that he turned on, that Hutchins Community Hospital spot. Yes, he turned the volume down while Andy was in there, and they're talking. And walked away from the board with no way to monitor when a 60-second spot is going to be ending. Yes, and having a conversation with somebody. So when Andy leaves, Johnny sits down just in time, perfect for when the ad is ending. And boy, have they got a fantastic tagline for Hutchins. And Hutchins Community Hospital, where malpractice is rapidly becoming a thing of the past. <laughs> and I'm wondering, who is that guy? We, I don't know. We could not find no who, name. Announce, who was doing the announcing and for that. He's good. I like him. Johnny reaches up in front of him there, and he's going for what I think is probably a live book, which usually the live book is like a three-ring binder with just loose paper in it. And on each of the sheets is tags where you give a you know a tagline or a special and he starts to go to the live book then he decides to just wing it so be sure to ask about those hutchins gift certificates for the man who's contracted everything (laughs) then johnny makes the announcement about the incredible wkrp mystery music contest where you can win five thousand dollars in cash all right now he was just told blank check. He's worked on stations in Los Angeles where there might have been a grand prize of, you know, four figures. Yes, but WKRP? Yeah, I... I he maybe was stretching it by thinking that that's right here. So what we have is a decimal issue, and we see Andy and his green jacket <laughs> streak past the window, and he bursts into the studio. $5,000? The prize is not $5,000. You read the memo wrong. It's $50. And he says that's the contest budget for the whole year. And how does Johnny respond? Oh. (laughs) I'm sorry. So how bad was the doctor's mistake? Well, in 1979, $5,000 would translate value-wise to almost eighteen grand in 2020. It's about 17925 So it's a pretty serious mistake. Yes. We're talking a, a decent car right there. This leads us into the theme song, the show opening. I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. Okay, so we come back from the opening in Andy's office. Andy's sitting at his desk, well, actually on his desk, and he's flipping through a big stack of albums, tossing aside ones he's not interested in, putting others in the stack. I think he got in some promo albums from the record companies, uh, so that's where you kind of go through and see what the the hot new hits are and try and figure them out. Um, So that's probably what he's working on. Now, hold on a minute. Coming in the door. It's time. Herb Darling, fashion alert. Okay, this is something new. Uh, he must, Herb must have gotten some Christmas money or something. He went on a shopping spree <laughs> over the holidays, I think, because Herb Ooh. has some new stuff in the closet, and it is getting Herb-like. A crazy checked red, white, and blue jacket. It looks like a, you mentioned this, a yeah, picnic a... <laughs> tablecloth. <laughs> looks like it came right off a picnic table. It really does. The pockets are turned at a diagonal angle, where which we've seen this diagonal angle with the pockets before on other jackets. He's got a dark blue tie and a white shirt with red vertical stripes. That shirt really, really sets things off, yes, especially when you, you put liked, it next to that jacket. You liked the uh, the white collar, which had rounded tips. Yeah, it's got a real gangster look to it. And even though the shirt has red vertical stripes, the collar is all solid yeah, white. Yeah, it's, all, it's that contrasting. And it used to be, you know, you could get like a blue shirt with a white collar. That was really hot mm-hmm. for a while. 
while, actually shortly after this. So that may be where this is headed. Herb comes in, and he's wanting to check. Obviously, Herb was listening to the station on the way in. and uh, Hey, Travis, I just heard on the radio. Are we really giving away $5,000? No, Herb, no, we're not. That was a mistake. It was supposed to be fifty. He bets Andy's in big trouble with the big guy. So he's doing a little gloating over there. Oh, he's very uh, happy about this. Yeah. Jennifer sticks her head in. Mr. Carlson just called. He'd like to see you as soon as he gets in. So Art's calling from home, right? Probably, because I doubt that they... No, they didn't have car phones then. Yeah, and it was 8.30 when Johnny and Andy were in the studio. So when's Art getting in? So, well, maybe he, he's mid-morning guy. He heard it as he's drinking his morning coffee, yeah, probably, like and probably spit out his coffee and called the office. So Andy doesn't seem too rattled. He tells Herb he's got a couple of ideas. He's going to go check with Johnny and V to see if they have any ideas. And on his way out the door, he asks her... You wouldn't happen to have any, uh, are you? Yeah, right. <laughs> so Andy leaves the office, and then Bailey comes in. They, they had to have passed each other out in the hall, and Andy must have said, hey, that stack of albums you want is on my desk. Because she walked right in, Herb's flipping through them, and she grabs them out of his hand. She was on a mission, obviously. When she flops them down in her left hand, which Jan Smithers is right-handed, she's carrying these albums in her left hand because she really needed to get that bad boy cover out there to the camera. For some reason, this bad boy album gets all kind of coverage throughout this episode. And there is a theory out there that maybe they paid to have that planted because Bad Boy was a band out of Milwaukee that for a long time there, for several years through the late 70s, they were just on the verge of being the next big thing. And they never made it, even though they had this album all over this episode of WKRP. We're going to see it again later. Bailey tells her that Jennifer told her that Mr. Carlson is thinking about firing everybody involved in this fiasco. Yeah, and Herb's really torn up about it. Oh, that's a real pity. Well, we got some more posters. Yes, here. and um, boy, the poster population changes almost weekly now. All and, of them will yeah, change. And we've got a variety. Yeah, here. I'm calling it the country corner back there behind Andy's desk. <laughs> we got that gigantic Emmy Lou Harris in a rock station. I'm sorry, I love Emmy Lou. But not on WKRP. I don't really see that happening. This is her album, Quarter Moon in a Ten Cent Town, from 1978, and love that title. Uh, she had three charting singles, but they all charted on the country charts. She had uh, one called Two Daddy, which was written by Dolly Parton, and then the big number one off of that one was called Two More Bottles of Wine. From now on, which was co-written by Carlene Carter. Yeah, so great album for Emmy Lou, but I don't understand it at WKRP. It's once again, it's the record company saying, "Hey, those guys are promoting music. Get them stuff." Well, then we've got Kenny Rogers, <laughs> yeah. the Gambler album. Well, I do like though he's kind of themed that wall, and then you move right over to the table, kind of in front of the windows, where a bunch of stuff is stacked, and on top of that, you see a thing that looks a little like an imprinted cover, like a manhole cover. That is an American funk band formed in Brooklyn called Brass Construction. That's stamped in there. So a promo for their album. And then right behind them on the wall, we got Jimmy's head from the Crash Landing album. Yeah, Jimi Hendrix. And, the Jimi and, Hendrix Experience. Yes, yes. Jimmy, I'm sorry. I... Uh, 
I, I just assumed everybody knew who Jimmy was. I, well, they <laughs> might have. I don't know. Oh, and also, you, uh, dear child of the '60s, I have to, I have to correct you on something. Uh oh. You put Jimi Hendrix in here as J I M M Y. Oh. <laughs> It's the J I M I. Nobody can see it. Yeah, nobody can see it. Nobody can see it. It's pronounced the same. But you you know, what's funny is Jimmy's got quite a presence in the programming office this week because if you look over just to the right of the door coming into Andy's office is the poster. It's a very trippy psychedelic poster. The Jimi Hendrix Experience album Axis Bold as Love is the poster over there. So for some reason, Jimmy getting a lot of exposure. On the end of the yellow filing cabinets, when you walk in through the door coming into Andy's office, to the left are yellow filing cabinets, and you see a poster of Leo Sayer, Endless Flight, 1976, which had the song, You Make Me Feel Like Dancing. You make me feel like dancing, wanna dance the night away. And that was a pretty big album for Leo Sayer, and that seems to be a really special spot now in the programming office. Those change all the time over there, right? High visuals. Yeah, spot. right it's... right there. It's it's on the end of the filing cabinet and on that wall. So this time we've got Leo Sayer and Leon Redbone kind of facing each other there. Leon is actually on the side of the filing cabinet and Leon not fitting into the rock and roll format really either. <laughs> uh, if, if you know Leon Redbone, he was born Dikran Gobalian in 1949. He is most likely of Armenian ancestry, but he never really gave a whole lot away about his background. They called him American, but also some say he was Canadian. So we really don't know a whole lot about Leon's background, but we do know he was quite the musician. I first met him in a 1982 Budweiser commercial, and it was just amazing. This does for you for being on the job and working hard all day. And of course, he's the duet with Dory De Chanel in 2003's Elf over the closing credits. So that's a little Leon Redbone. Before we go on, I do want to say the poster of Leo Sayer, I, I looked it up and I think Leo Sayer and Richard Simmons went to the same hairstylist. They have a similar <laughs> look. They do. I think I think Leo might have the same kind of uh, crazy energy of a Richard Simmons too. He just has that look to him. <laughs> I, I don't know him at all, but I must be but the hair. It's the hair and also the jumping. I think yes. is part of it. That pose on that album. He is way too happy about things. Well, now we're in Carlson's office, and Mr. Carlson is talking with Jennifer. He's crying about losing the five thousand dollars. He's kicking things. He's having a little tantrum. I'm not a big fan of this version of art. No, I, I didn't like that this either. I, I know we, you know, a lot of times have to cast art as the mama's boy, and it's the the mother son relationship. But I want to go. Older son, not baby. Right. I didn't like this side that we were seeing of him. And Jennifer tells him... You're being childish about this. I am not. (laughs) Boy, is this going to make my mama mad? Now, I'm wondering, was this maybe something... You know, comedy kind of ebbs and flows and certain things are funny at certain times and then they're not funny 20 years later. I'm just wondering if maybe baby talk and this childish thing was funny at some point there, and that's why they kind of went to this, because it really doesn't appeal to me at all. It was not a good sight of Carlson to see. Yeah, uh, Carlson compares this situation to, 
It's like losing Pete Rose. Now, that I did enjoy. When he got into that part of it and kind of moved away from the childish stuff, that was pretty funny. Uh, talking about losing Pete, because a lot of Cincinnati was broken up about losing Pete. Come on now, Mr. Carlson. It's not that bad. Yes, it is. Mr. Carlson, Pete's gone, but life must go on. And you probably know the name Pete Rose. You might not know the legend of Pete Rose. He is Charlie Hustle to Cincinnatians. Uh, the man had the most most of virtually any Major League Baseball player in history. Uh, he was active in the major league from 63 to 86 as a player, most career hits, most career singles, most career at-bats, and that at-bats number 14,053. Now, in 1979, Pete made the decision to become a free agent. He left the Cincinnati Reds, which a lot of people thought that uh, he would be in that uniform until his final days. He was not. He moved to the Philadelphia Phillies, where he became that year the highest paid athlete in sports as a free agent. He signed a four-year, $3.2 million contract, and Cincinnati was devastated. And Carlson was devastated to lose Pete. But Philadelphia? Johnny walks into Carlson's office wearing unusually dark glasses. They're full blackout. Which normally you can kind of see his eyes. Yeah, sometimes they're tinted yellow or something. He's also wearing a t-shirt that has become a shirt. If you Google Johnny Fever t-shirt, this is the one you'll find. It's the Black Death Malt Liquor t-shirt. Black Death is a fictional brand of malt liquor. You can't buy the malt liquor, but you can buy the shirt. And this was designed by a ripoff press underground comic artist named Dave Sheridan, who did this for Howard Hessman, not for WKRP. This was done for Howard Hessman. And when Johnny walks in, Carlson will not make eye contact with him. He's doing the, you know, I'm not going to look at you, I'm mad at you It's kind of the two kids on a playground apologizing to each other after having a big fight. Yes, they're both kicking kicking like they're kicking the dirt. Yeah. Carlson tells him, okay, mistakes happen. Well, nobody's perfect. You're not perfect, I'm not perfect. Jennifer, maybe, but... (laughs) And Johnny laughingly tells Carlson he wrote up his resignation. He's really trying to minimize it, and Art just snaps it right out of his hand. Thanks, and good luck in Philadelphia. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a little callback to Pete Rose there. Art's still upset about the Pete Rose thing. And Uh, then Andy and Venus enter, no knocking. They just walk right up and knocks. It's a pretty open policy anymore around Art's office. And woo! Venus's outfit. He is hip happening. Yeah, that is some good. The green and gold is always a nice combination. And he's doing the green satin shirt and a gold scarf that he's not at the end. And it's an extremely large collar on his shirt that it, the scarf is under. It goes coast to coast. That collar is wide. Yeah, from shoulder <laughs> to shoulder. And his pants are the same green satin as the shirt and they're bedazzled on the sides going all the way down with silver starbursts. Really reminded me a lot of 70s era Elvis and the jumpsuits he had with the bedazzling on him. It had that look to it. But so, Venus pulls it off. Yeah, so Carlson, uh, very quickly, he just kind of looks at Andy and says, you can put your envelope on the desk, too. Uh, that's when Andy <laughs> finds out Johnny has, well, 
In Carlson's mind, Johnny's resigned. Uh, Johnny really wasn't hoping it went that far, but it has. So um, Andy's trying to talk him out of it. Andy says that he thinks that he and Venus have got a way out of this situation. I don't care. What? Mr. Carlson, please listen to Andy. No. I don't get that. I, that, that response to me didn't right. didn't ring true. I think really his response would have been, really? What is it? I, I think so, too. But I, I don't know. It's it's a continuation of this art as the little throwing a little tantrum and being a pouty the baby, boy or being whatever. a pouty baby yeah. or something. And yeah. Jennifer has to plead with him. Not a big fan of the uh, the baby, the baby talk on Jennifer. Do you want to lose 5,000 bucky-wuckies? This kind of ends it when she does the bucky-wuckies. So Venus and Andy are excited about this idea that they've got. So they pull some chairs up to Carlson's desk. They think they've got the plan that's going to fix everything. Yeah, but then Johnny sits on Carlson's desk, which just doesn't seem like a good idea in his current situation, especially. Yes. Will you get off of my desk? <laughs> the plan is they are going to create this song identification contest that is so hard, no one can possibly win it. And the contest is to last two weeks. We cut together some songs so close, nobody can guess them. And after two weeks, we announce that the contest is over. No winner. Seems a little bit like fraud, but it might get them out of this if they don't do that all the time. Uh, it does seem a little like bait and switch, like we're offering a prize we don't have. But if this doesn't work, you're all fired. Hey, it'll work, bro. Now, we have always heard that this episode, kind of like Turkey's Away, was based on a true incident. Now, according to Casey Petrosky, it was more inspired by a true set of circumstances, which he took and then molded into a story. So here is Casey with his inspiration. I also worked at a great radio station in Buffalo, New York, called WKBW, KB Radio. We were owned by Cap Cities. Back then, Cap Cities was notoriously cheap. They wouldn't spend money on anything. So... We would we would do contests on KB like a music trivia game. We play the beginning part of a record, and people have to call in and guess the the name of the song. And literally, the prizes were like <laughs> I'm embarrassed by saying this, but this is the truth. They give you like a six pack of Wrigley's chewing gum <laughs> and two boxes of you know, like two Jello sized boxes of Tide, one for one load of wash each. And uh, my program director who I still love, and, and I, we called him God because he was just, he was almighty. He was just a genius named Jefferson <laughs> K. And Jeff somehow was able to talk Cap Cities into giving them, uh, giving us money for a budget, to, for a contest, a big contest. And KB didn't do a lot of big contests. We had plenty of listeners without doing it, but Jeff wanted to do it. They gave him the money. And so he devised the contest. It was called The Man in the Black Bag. And Jeff wrote all these clues, and, and Jeff had a spectacular voice, and we had good production people in those days, even working with tape. And so we put together, teases went on the air, the man in the black bag is coming, the man in the black bag is coming. Then there were actual promos, you know, starting on Monday, the man in the black bag, listen for your chance to win this trip. And I, I don't know where the trip was, it was Hawaii, a pair, I mean, a, an expensive prize. And I don't, you know what's going to happen, it, the First or second time they played, I don't think it was the first, but it was certainly the first day. Within the first few hours, someone said, Rumpelstiltskin! And that was the man in the black bag. The contest over on the first God-blessed day. Oh, no. Yes. So, I, you know, that's the contest that nobody could win. So you just, you know, just change that, amend it to fit in the context of WKRP, and 
there it is. Carlson's buying into this plan, and Andy says, okay, now how about Johnny's resignation letter? And Johnny, when he was got thrown off the desk, moves over to sit in the windowsill. He's kind of sitting on the window ledge, leaned back. He's got those full blackout sunglasses on, and he's looking very sage and deeply in thought as uh, Andy and Art are discussing his future. <sighs> well, it looks like you're off the hook, Fever. Once more, you have cheated the Grim Reaper. (laughs) Here you go. And he gets up and walks over to hand the letter back to him. And Johnny doesn't move. Carlson even waves the letter in front of Johnny's eyes. No movement. <laughs> Which is when we realize, oh, hold it, Johnny is not with us anymore. He's, uh, he's taking a little nap. Uh, obviously, the coffee is not kicking in just yet for Johnny. So Art actually raises his sunglasses up, which is a nice gag. <laughs> And, and Johnny opens one eye and then smiles at him. Get him out of here! <laughs> Art gets mad and throws them all out. I mean, he, he spared them all their jobs, but he kicks them out of his office. So we're doing a transition from this scene to the next, and there's a beauty shot of Cincinnati, thanks to Chessie D, our man in Cincinnati. Yeah, uh, Chessie's been sending us some pictures and information about a lot of the geography of Cincinnati. And he said this shot was taken from D. Devo Park or Davao Park? Devo, Devo I, do, I don't know. He didn't send us a pronunciation with it, but it's D-E-V-O-U Park, which is across the river from Cincinnati. It's in Covington, Kentucky. And he said that this really is considered one of the best spots to get a beauty shot of the city and the river. He also said this that this shot was used in the soap opera the edge of night. We're now in Studio B, what we believe is Studio B. And this is like a production studio where commercials are made and promos. Nothing goes on the air from here. Yeah, the studio is only for recording and producing. This is where you make all the spots and you do bumpers and promos, whatever's happening. Now, is this our first time in Studio B? Yeah, this is our first time in the production studio. We have never been here before, and uh, I'm, I'm a little concerned. You know, they went to all that uh, expense and con- consulted with engineers for the main studio, and they got it looking really good. I think they blew the budget on that. <laughs> is the production this room is a not not looking good? <laughs> it's not even a big big enough to be a walk-in closet. No, and I'm seeing a woolen sack tape recorder, which you're probably familiar with from elementary school, sitting over there in front of Johnny. And if that's all they've got to edit on, woo. <laughs> Venus and Johnny are feverishly working, trying to splice this tape together. Oh, man, you don't know nothing about splicing tape. Just leave me alone, okay? This is when Bailey enters and tosses some albums down. Yeah, the Bad Boy album is back. And it sounds like they're using a guillotine style editor, uh, which is not recommended for professional splicing. Again, they should have hired those consultants back. Uh, But Johnny slams something down and cuts himself or thinks he cut himself. And that's really not what you use to edit tape with. Johnny hurts his finger. He says he's feeling faint. But when Bailey looks at it, she doesn't see anything. Bailey sits down and says to let her do it. Um, Also, you don't edit with tape off of the tape deck. I don't know what they're doing in there. Uh, But they do finally wind up with with something on the tape. And we find out that Bailey went to journalism school. This is the first time we've heard that. And then Johnny sarcastically says... College graduate. Venus is all over that. He's like, hey, you never went to school. Hey, man, I went through Princeton. I'll bet. (laughs) I did. I was in a car. <laughs> so 
squad car, actually. <laughs> very, very educational. And while they're having this discussion, Bailey finishes the splicing job. Venus cues up the spliced together tunes that must be named along with the artist in correct order to win $5,000. They believe it is impossible to the point that Bailey doesn't even think it's fair. And over to the far right, we see a poster on the door. Thin Lizzy, Live and Dangerous. This was a double album they released in June of 78. Thin Lizzy was an Irish rock band. They were known for their studio hits Jailbreak and probably their biggest one, The Boys are Back in Town. The boys are back in town, the boys are back in town. Okay, it is time for the contest. The first day of the contest. Johnny's on the air in the morning. He's wearing this green button that we don't know what it means. It says, I read on it, and we couldn't find anything about it. Some kind of literacy initiative or something, I'm guessing. Or Johnny's just proud of the fact he's literate. I I don't know. (laughs) Well, Johnny announces that it's 8.30 a.m., and he uses a red phone to talk with a contestant named Jean Kleppner, She's going to try to name the tune. And if you look in the upper left-hand corner of the screen on the side, not, not on the top, Oops. we got a bit of a boom mic in the upper yes. left-hand corner of the screen. They didn't get back fast enough. And actually, the cameraman tries to help out. You see him panning right a little bit, but you can still see it up on the edge there. Mrs. Kleppner, she's from Covington, which we just mentioned that park that we were in was in Covington. And Covington is the fifth largest city in Kentucky. And Mrs. Kleppner wants to say hello to her mother, who lives in Norwood, which is another suburb of Cincinnati. Norwood's kind of interesting because it is completely surrounded by Cincinnati, but it is not a part of Cincinnati. It is its own separate community. And again, props to our man Chesy D in Cincy. Gene Kleppner names five songs correctly. <laughs> Out of six. But she she completely forgot one. Actually, the fact that she only named five, somebody put that on IMDb as a goof. The reason she only named five is because she missed the one, and that's why they're off the hook. So Johnny is giddy, and he's laughing out loud when this is over. We were trying to figure out the timing of the laugh. He starts laughing during her uh, guess of YMCA, which is correct. And we we're trying to figure out, it seemed inappropriate where he started laughing. She hadn't made a mistake yet, but we're just wondering if the pressure was getting to him. I think that's what it was. He's just, oh, he's he's going crazy. He knows this is a mistake. That she's getting all these songs, and how is she doing that? Then he seems so happy and giddy when he hangs up with her, and then the joke is... What are you laughing about? She got five out of six. <laughs> no, we're in big trouble, man. <laughs> So when Johnny comes back from the commercial, guess what? We heard that little piece of music again that we identified less coming out of back in Hold Up, only this time they've edited out the dog bark. Andy decides for some reason that it's going to freak people out if they immediately go back and pull another card and make another call. Johnny takes the glass bowl that has three or four postcards in it. He sticks his head in the bowl and he says, I'm walking into the specially constructed stainless steel vault. I'm reaching deeply down into the big postcard bin and I'm withdrawing one of the many thousands of postcards that have been flooding the station since we started this contest. And it looks like we're going to be calling Mr. Donald Pasola of Mount Auburn. And it made me crack up because his voice is kind of echoing 
as he's talking on the mic. Yeah, so I thought it. that was funny. He's got it right up there by the mic. So he's just getting that nice little effect there, that live effect. And he pulls out a postcard from a Mr. Donald Pasola of Mount Auburn. Mr. Pasola seems to be um, under the weather. What is it? Uh, hello there. <laughs> is this Donald Pasola? Uh, m- m- Mr. Pozzola, are you all right? Yeah, I'm okay. Great. What is it? He guesses all six songs and the artists correctly. What? Including, and I love, Francis Scott Key for the National <laughs> Anthem. <laughs> Although, technically, I don't think it was Mr. Key that was performing that version of it, but that was the the author. Mr. Pasola, uh, as we said, was from Mount Auburn, and Mount Auburn is a neighborhood northeast of downtown Cincinnati. It is the home and birthplace of William Howard Taft, the 27th U.S. President and 10th Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. His home is still there in Mount Auburn and is a museum. Thanks to Chessie D., our man in Cincy, for this information as well. And how about the name Donald Pasola? It's got a real feel to it. There's a reason for that. Casey explains. Don Pasola, the name of the... I, that right. was my name. Don Pasola is really a guy named Sandy Beach, a guy I worked with on the air at WKBW and big influence. He, he's the guy that taught me how to write jokes. It was always funny, but he taught me how to structure what I was doing to get laughs. So yeah. his, his air name was Sandy Beach, but his, his air name was Don Sandy. Pizzola? Sandy's okay. just retired now. Finally, uh, he was Don Pasola. And, and I, I asked them to keep that in the show. And they did. To end up the scene, Johnny pops on, a tune by Eric Clapton, which I cannot even believe they had to pay for it. It was literally two notes. You know, there's no holding back when it comes to Eric Clapton. Before he turned it down, it was I'll Make Love to You Anytime by Eric Clapton, which we only know that because of our list and cheat sheets. So Andy heads out speechless. Now, I had to geek out on the set of songs that they played, so I popped it onto the editor just to get some times. It contains six songs. The boys' song is 0.4 seconds. <laughs> Tumbling Dice is a long one. It's 0.7 seconds. <laughs> Both YMCA and Donkashane are a half second each. But, uh, the straight-on clip from Heart, 0.3 <laughs> seconds. A third of a second. What? And then they really get really generous at the end. They leave the national anthem on for one and a third seconds. Well, it is the national it anthem. It is. And that's the big crescendo out at the end. Don't even have time to stand. You know, I've really enjoyed working here. <laughs> so we're back in Andy's office and we've, we've got, got another, another one. Herb Darling, fashion alert. Sky blue jacket and pants, burnt orange sweater vest with black grid-like pattern, reddish tie, a white shirt. Yeah, the the grid-like pattern on that orange sweater vest. The sweater is what jumps out at you. If the if really if the sweater wasn't there, we probably would not have issued an alert on this right, one. But, but I the, I think the sweater the pushed it over. The blue and the orange and ooh. if he walks on the street with that, he's going to cause a wreck. He's got to be careful. <laughs> Where, where he goes with that thing on. So Herb is over sitting at Andy's desk, and he's looking at the back wall at a promo poster of the band Devo, and it was their debut album, Are We Not Men? 
We Are Devo, which featured the really weird, bizarre hit, the remake of the Rolling Stones' Satisfaction. Now, the small pic on that little uh, poster that Herb is looking at, there's a picture there of a golfer's head. That was actually the cover of Devo's album, and that picture is a cartoon, but it is based on... Chichi Rodriguez. Chai Chai Rodriguez. That is his picture. (laughs) (laughs) And Devo, an American rock band from Akron, Ohio. Herb is talking to the band on the poster as if they're soldiers and he's their commanding officer. He's into a whole rap about taking a hill and some of you aren't going to come back. And I thought it was maybe a patent speech or so. I couldn't find a corresponding find, it speech. It was kind of like generic. something out of a movie or something yeah. to me. But he's enjoying being in Andy's office. He's starting to feel at home there. He thinks that's going to be his new home. Yeah. He doesn't hear when Les enters. Herb? <laughs> Why are you talking to yourself? So Herb says, Les, come over, have a seat. He's wanting him to sit down on the couch. Oh, and now a special look at this episode's bandage placement for the five-time Buckeye Newshawk Award winner, Les Nessman. This is the Les Nessman Bandage Report. Now here's Donna Stare with her report about Les Nessman. Left hand... This has been a look at the bandage placement for Silver Sow and Copper Cob award-winning journalist Les Nessman. Now this isn't just a a little band-aid. This is his entire thumb, tip to wrist. Even looks like there might have been a sprain or a break or something. I think he's got one of those kind of stiff... Uh, like a metal brace or something yeah, on the, it. Yeah, the running down the length of it. It is a pretty serious injury. Please note... This is on his left hand covering his thumb. This is going to be important later. So Les has a seat, and Herb tells him to make himself comfortable. (laughs) So Les slides back about six inches and stays completely upright, hands folded in his lap. That's Les's version of comfortable. Well, Herb's excited, and he's telling Les that they used to be big shots around there until Andy showed up, and now they're nobodies. We are, especially you. Herb's a manipulator. Herb is always working the politics, and now he's seeing an opening, and he could be on his way out. And he knows that Les will get on board very quickly. He can convince him this is their chance to take over again. And he goes on this long spiel about the dungarees and the suits and the revolution all over the world, and Les is being drawn into all of this. It's a mess. Herb is all over the place and super excited, but he's trying to tie this whole dungarees and suits thing together. And this is the last time that we are going to hear a reference to the dungarees and suits, which we remember was Hugh Wilson's original pitch about the show. And now we finally hit the point where we're actually stating it and we're, we're taking sides and the dungarees and the suits is now becoming a very visualized argument Les says... It's just like the body snatchers. <laughs> now, that seemed like a dated reference because the invasion of the body snatchers came out in 1956. Well, we went to look that one up, and we found out there was another one. It was a brand new one that came out that month. It was running right then in theaters in December of 1978. It was a remake 
uh, featuring Donald Sutherland, Jeff Goldblum, and Leonard Nimoy. I never saw this one. I remember seeing the old black and white one with sitting with Dad for some reason, because I probably because I was scared. With Kevin McCarthy as the guy running around screaming when the yes. trucks are pulling away. I've got that scene in my head. Black and white just seems scarier. It even to seems me. worse. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now this one was very highly uh, regarded, and actually, Rolling Stone said it was one of the best remakes they had ever seen at the time. So uh, pretty good one. I've never seen it. Uh, kind of interested though. After we we looked it up, what I remember is aliens are replacing Earthlings with pod people. Yes. Yes. And, and they're the, taking over. So and obviously the pod people wear blue jeans or something. I don't know. <laughs> So Les says he's with Herb. He's ready to go. He's he stood up and he they're ready to go on to Carlson's office. As they're heading out, Les tells Herb, "You know who I think is behind all this? Who? Levi Strauss." We found out dungarees aren't really blue jeans because we looked it up. We did. We looked it up. <laughs> and if you're playing our drinking game, there you go. Um, first, we looked up Levi Strauss, who was a German-born American, founded the first company to manufacture blue jeans. His friend, Jacob W. Davis, and he invented and patented a new style of denim work pant in 1871. And yes, it was blue jeans. And the big thing that set them apart was they were riveted at all of the stress points. So it made him really tough. When he died, he left his company to his four nephews. His estate was worth about $6 million back in 1902. In 2018, that's the equivalent to $175 million. Not a bad deal. And that's a the, lot of blue jeans. The company itself, still in business and still getting big. All right, uh, so dungarees and blue jeans, they're not really the same. No, and they're kind of equ equating them in this argument. When they talk about dungarees, they're really talking about people wearing blue jeans, but those are not really the same thing. Dungarees are mentioned for the first time back in the 17th century. They were a thick, cheap, coarse cotton cloth, often white, sometimes blue. They were worn by impoverished people in Bombay, India, in a dockside village called Dongri. Hold on a minute. Dungri? Hmm. Yes. And actually, the Hindi name of the cloth was Dungri, D-U-N-G-R-I. The cloth got shipped to England, where it was used by the Brits for manufacturing cheap, tough work clothes. The English pronounced it a bit differently, and it became their word, dungaree. Denim and dungaree are often compared to each other, but there is a difference. Denim is woven from uncolored yarn, and then it's colored after the weaving. Dungaree is made from pre-colored yarn. Dungaree actually is the cloth, not the pants. That's the way I understood yeah. it. So when you say you're wearing dungarees as jeans, it's really just the cloth, but it's kind of become a word now that we use for jeans. Now, this is where we split. From here on out, we're going to be splitting into two different versions. For each scene, we're going to do first the Johnny Saves the Day version of the scene. Then we'll go back and do the Johnny Has to Pay version of the scene so we can compare them to each other. With all of this rewriting going on, we asked... Casey Petrowski, how much of his original script was retained in the final episode? We've heard stories about Hugh Wilson rewriting every line of most of the scripts. 
You remember Bill Dial only had one line in Turkeys Away. Well, Casey can relate. They used like one joke for my script. That's it. Yeah, I know there was at least one joke. There may have been a couple of others, but that I remember I was watching it disappointed. They didn't like my they didn't like my jokes very much. Hey, this is Alan talking to you from the future. I was just about to upload this episode when I got an email from Casey. During our interview, he couldn't recall the specific line of his that stayed in the final cut of the show. Well, we sent him a proof version of the podcast. Remember the virility joke from the first studio scene? Hearing us mention it in the podcast jogged his memory. That was Casey's line. Okay, now, if all of this isn't already confusing enough... Go back to the past. So we start this scene in Carlson's office. Now, this is the Johnny Saves the Day version of the scene. In this one, Carlson is talking with Jennifer, and they're both sitting behind his desk. Jennifer says she needs to be getting back to the phones, but Carlson says... No, 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 Jennifer. Now, just stay and talk. Nobody's going to call us. Okay. Carlson tells Jennifer that Les has a theory, and Herb agrees with it. Now, we were talking about this when Herb and Les were in Andy's office talking. This was really Herb's idea, and he even says, Les, I have a great idea. Somewhere between the programming office and Carlson's office, it has now become Les's idea. Let's say that a crime has been committed. And just for the sake of argument, let's say that the criminal's been caught. Uh-huh. All right. And nine times out of ten, what kind of pants is that guy going to be wearing? <laughs> Jennifer is not impressed. You know, Art really bought into this theory, but he's having trouble getting people to understand it or get excited about it. But he understands he's it. He's really. <laughs> he's into it. Andy walks in. And this gives Jennifer uh, her escape She gets a plan. chance yes. to, to get out of there because she is obviously not into whatever realization Art feels he has had. She is not sharing it about the dungarees. <laughs> Andy tells Carlson, Johnny wants to pay back the $5,000. And Andy's saying, we really can't make him do that, can we? Where's the money? <laughs> Uh, well, yeah. Carlson's got his hand out. Art wants the money. Andy hands Carlson $12.50. That's going to be Johnny's <laughs> monthly payment. Monthly payment. Monthly. So when I first heard this, I was thinking that was per week. No, it's monthly. So monthly. he's getting 12 of these payments in each year for how long? 400 total months or 33 years. <laughs> yeah, and that's when Carlson springs on Andy uh, he thinks Andy has been a little overworked, and Art decides. Now, Art says he has decided to do this. I don't believe it was Art that made this decision. I, I believe think this was put into Art's head. I believe we have seen Herb plant things in Art's head before. Yes. I believe Herb planted this. Herb is now in charge of promotion, and Les has been put in charge of station publicity. I do that. Uh, no, not anymore. Your job is to program the music that goes on this station and uh, keep those other dungarees in line. Andy knows that if he can't be promoting the station and working on the publicity of the station, he can't get people to tune in and listen to the music that's on the station. So it's all got to work together, and he does not trust Herb and Les to handle it. Carlson says that Herb came up with the idea to give the prize money to the winner 
in cash. Which he considers a really great idea. He's yes, very they, excited about it. They've been announcing it all morning on the station. Yeah, and it kind of scares me and it scares Andy, too, that they've got five grand in cash just sitting there in a briefcase. Before things can get too heated, Jennifer sticks her head in to say that Mr. Pasola is at the station early because his wife is in the hospital. Now, when you say before things get too heated, we want to point that out. They never got to a point where there were any veiled threats or any indications of Andy leaving or Art firing anyone. None of that happened in this scene. That was stopped by Jennifer coming in. Now, let's back up. And go back to the start of this scene. Now, in the version Johnny has to pay, the version which was originally shot the first night, we're now in Carlson's office with Les and Herb in there. Andy enters, and Carlson is trying to build his dungarees case. And this is basically the same story he was telling Jennifer, only now he's trying to explain it to Andy, and Andy is just befuddled. Dungarees, Travis, dungarees. I, well, I, I must have missed something here. Yeah, Andy's totally lost, but then we pan over to Herb, and oh my goodness, oh, it's time it's for time number another one. Herb Darling, fashion alert. Orange sherbet shirt with blue, gray, and light striped jacket, a brown and white striped tie and gray pants and white shoes. It's a cornucopia of fashion alerts. <laughs> Herb went nuts at some outlet place somewhere and bought a ton of stuff over the break. So anyway, Carlson again is pitching this idea, only now it has a very different tone to it when he tells Andy... But your problem is, Travis, you're overworked. So I've uh, given Les and Herb some of their old responsibilities. And it's a lot worse having it happen right in front of Les and Herb. Yes, they are standing there looking like a, a pair of vultures. Oh, yeah, Lerb is Lerb is ugly back there. <laughs> We're the suits. Herb says well, they know how to run a radio station. They bragged about giving the prize money away in cash. They claim that they're taking advantage of this as a publicity stunt because they've got photographers coming to take pictures of this. And in this version... The briefcase that has the money in it, for some reason, has a black WKRP embossed or screened on the leather, and it just was not a good idea. Jennifer enters to say that Mr. Pasola is coming early, just like in the last one. Herb sends Les out to call the photographers and get them here ASAP. Yeah, so this is the thing. Having him come in early now, this is going to mess up their publicity plans if they don't have the guys from the paper there to take the pictures. So uh, Herb and Les head out now with Pasola coming up. They need to get all that taken care of and get set up. So Carl And Herb starts to leave with taking the briefcase with him. Carlson says he wants some private time. And as Herb's trying to walk out with the briefcase, Hart gives him a little... Herb. Right. Yeah. <laughs> back here. This is where Andy and Carlson have this talk that is way too dark. He's telling Andy he's sorry about the change in duties. He knows this has got Andy upset. But he had to do something in order to tell Mama that he did something. You know, this is a big mistake, and he wants to be able to report to her that he took some discipline. Andy takes full responsibility for this mistake, and Carlson assures Andy that 
come on, this arrangement's going to work out fine. Just think about it. Well, there's really not too much to think about, sir. He doesn't follow through on that thought, but the implication... He doesn't have time. He doesn't have time because Herb enters. Well, but the implication there is he's thinking about quitting. This That's is what really I heavy. I was thinking Andy was about to say there's not that much to think about. I'm, I'm out of here. here. I'm gone. Right. I'm gone. And Herb just cut that off, but that is the attitude and the, the atmosphere that we're left with. And Andy says... To Art, after Herb sticks his head in and says the winner's here, Andy says he's going to skip the ceremony. And then Art kind of chases him across the lobby as Andy's exiting. Going, come on, Andy, come on. Yeah, just bad vibes through the whole scene. So this is the one shot originally on December 8th that never aired, showed up on the Shout Factory disc. And we kind of see why. Uh, This probably was not the right tone. And somebody looked at it and said, hmm, no. We move to scene eight, which is in the lobby. This is when they're presenting the money. Now, we're going back now to, to the, the Johnny Saves the Day version, <laughs> which is the version that we all know and love, the, the one where, the where one Johnny brings aired. the money back. And in this one, we have... This is a Les Nessman bandage placement update. Now, here's Donna Stair with her update about Les Nessman's bandage placement. Les's bandage is now... On the wrong hand. Now, you remember, we did the thumb and around the wrist in our earlier bandage report. Of his left hand. It was on his left hand. Now, in this scene, which we believe to have been shot at a a much different time. This Mm -hmm. is at a different day that Les forgot what hand he had his bandage on. It's very clearly on the right hand thumb, and it goes up to the wrist, but just the wrong hand. WKRP normally shoots one episode in a single day. They will sometimes do it in front of two different live audiences. Sometimes they will do a live run-through without an audience, then an audience, but it is all done in a single day. Now, we asked Casey Petrosky, how common is it for a show to do a pickup shoot like this, especially with a new actor. You know, they, they want to get the shows all wrapped that day. So the idea that they would, KRP would shoot additional scenes on another day using other actors just floors me. I don't know how they do that. Cause that just, you know, if you got to use the studio again, up goes your production costs and, mm-hmm. and, you know, bringing in other actors, up your production costs. Les is in the lobby introducing Mr. Pasola to Herb and then to Mr. Carlson. And Mr. Pasola explains that his wife's in the hospital and that the prize money is going to pay for the whole operation. And we have a lot of Mr. Pasolas that we're going to be dealing with here. This is our first one. <laughs> this dude is one weird looking dude, but I bet you have seen him before. This is Vincent Schiavelli. You might not know the name, but you see him, you know the face. He's very tall and has been described as having droopy owl-like eyes. He has a very unique look. He uh, has been in over 120 film and TV appearances. Interesting little connection to WKRP. Vincent appeared in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 1975, along with another WKRP guest, Delos V. Smith, who appeared in Pilot Part 2. Vincent is also one of three actors who appeared in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and also played a villain in the Tim Burton Batman movies. The others were Jack Nicholson as the Joker in the first Batman, then Danny DeVito, 
was the Penguin in the second one of that series, which was called Batman Returns. And Vincent Schiavelli played the organ grinder, a villain who was working for the Penguin. Unfortunately, he died very young in 2005 from lung cancer. He was only 57 years old. Mr. Pasola, how do you do? I'm fine. Look, I'm really sorry about coming up early, but uh, my wife's in the hospital. He seems fairly laid back. He's explaining... The story of his wife and the problems that, you know, this money is going to pay for her procedure. And and he seems like kind of an affable, laid-back guy. Les tapes the whole ceremony of handing over the money to Mr. Pasola, and he's going to play this for his 12 o'clock news show. Now, and Les is doing this by holding the microphone up to their mouths. Of a little cassette player. Yes, he's got his little cassette deck, and he's holding the mic up which is different than what he's going to do in the next scene. Yes. So we want to keep an eye on that, how he does that. So they're, they're asking Mr. Pasola for a statement. They want a drop that they can use on the show. So he says... WPRK is my favorite radio station. <laughs> I listen to it all the time. Maybe he doesn't listen all the time. <laughs> and, and then I love... Herb jumps in. Can we fix that? Fix what? So Les, totally on top of it. <laughs> now, here comes Johnny. Johnny is finishing up. He's done with his shift. He is on his way out of the station. He's leaving for the day about the same time that they're done with this whole presentation to Mr. Pasola and all the stuff going on there. So Johnny says... You really know your music. Thank you. Look, I, I really have to be going. I'll, listen, I'll walk down to the car with you. Yes, Mr. Pasola. Oh, how is your cough? If you remember when Mr. Pasola called in, he was coughing and sounding really awful. There's obviously a problem with this Mr. Pasola. He does not seem authentic. Johnny can kind of hear, this doesn't sound like the same guy I spoke with on the phone. Well, but the big thing is, as Johnny walks out the door with him, he says, you really know your music. And Johnny is excited about finding somebody else that he can really talk some music with. So Johnny and Mr. Pasola, they leave. And Mr. Carlson is telling Herb and Les, you guys did a great job. Yeah, they're very excited about it. And now another guy walks in. This guy obviously having a problem with the uh, nasal passages. He's got a bad cold. And he says he's there to pick up his money. I'm here for the money. What money? The, the prize, buddy. <coughs> Wait just one moment here, dungaree. And he can barely talk without coughing every other word. So he immediately starts to whip out birth certificate, wallet. He's got credit cards. He's got all kinds of ID. And because, as he says... Figured you guys wouldn't be dumb enough to just give away $5,000 without asking for identification. Carlson realizes what happened, and he's freaking out. Travis! Now, this guy that came in is Tracy Walter. This is the real Mr. Pasola. The coughing Pasola. The coughing Pasola. And he was the voice that Johnny was talking to on the phone when they named the songs. He is credited, we saw on the shooting script that Casey Petrowski showed us, he is credited as Mr. Pasola number two. Two, Tracy does play the same guy in both versions, so he was called back for the second shoot. Tracy has made a career out of playing rednecks, hillbillies, and slow-witted rural southerners. And quite a career. He has 177 credits on his filmography on IMDb. He also appeared 
in the original Tim Burton Batman in 1989. Tracy has appeared in six Jonathan Demme films, including Silence of the Lambs, where he appeared as the funeral home director. He was the cook in one of my favorite movies, City Slickers. <coughs> Herb tries to explain what happened to the real Mr. Pasola. Yeah, he's uh, telling him, hey, uh, really sorry, and... Uh... Well, to make a long story short... This man and I have just been fired. Hart, of course, comes in and makes Herb's prediction come true. Herb! Les! You're fired. See? Johnny comes walking back into the lobby, and he is carrying the briefcase with the $5,000 in it. And I love it. As he walks by Les and Herb, he says, You know, that guy knows less about music than you two. So he walks over, hands it to Carlson, and in Johnny's mind, he's now paid back the $5,000. I think you owe me twelve fifty. Okay, so that ends the scene number eight in the lobby in the Johnny Saves the Day version. Now, we're going to back up, start that scene again, where we we leave Carlson's office, we come into the lobby, now we're doing the Johnny Has to Pay version. So they're getting ready to give the winner his money. Herb introduces the winner as... Uh, This is Mr. Pesola. Mr. Pesola, this is Mr. Carlson, our station manager. It's an incorrect pronunciation, and I don't know where it came from. If the guy walked in and said that, or if Herb said that, I I don't know. But for some reason, they're now saying the name differently than they had said it on the radio earlier. they say it several times incorrectly. Yeah. Now, this guy who is there to act as the con man is an entirely different guy. This is John Wheeler. John Wheeler has appeared on Chips. Hill Street Blues, Little House on the Prairie. He was a reporter in Apollo 13. He did have a recurring character for a few episodes on the Dukes of Hazard in 1982. And he was in the Apple Dumpling Gang. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> right there. He's arrived. He says his wife's in the hospital, same as, as the other version. He seems really jumpy, though. And he keeps reaching for the money. Herb gets everybody arranged for the ceremony. Carlson presents the money to Mr. Pesola, and they ask Mr. Pesola to say something. WPRK is my favorite station. I listen to it all the time. Thank you and goodbye. Similar line to what we saw with Schiavelli, got the call letters wrong. Only this time when he says thank you and goodbye, boom, he is out of there. He Just darts out of there, yes. Runs right out of the station. The timing on this it just feels odd. They kind of look each at each other, and then Carlson, okay, uh, I'm going into my office. Now we get two guys that did not show up in the Johnny Saves the Day version. Two photographers enter after this first peso la has darted out of the lobby. This whole scene was kind of weird, I yeah. thought. They enter, the photographers do, and about that time, Jennifer walks in, and the photographers go crazy. Oh, wow, this is quite the story. And they start taking pictures of it's her. It's a leering kind of very... It's very awkward. Sexist, weird, awkward. One of the photographers, the guy talking, is played by Ken Hill. He does get a listing in the closing credits, but he's not identified as the photographer. We just kind of figured it out because it's the only name in those credits that we couldn't associate him with something. So he is the photographer with kind of the bald head who is talking 
and starts taking the pictures. Well, and Jennifer does the this posing and yeah. weird stuff. And I, that didn't seem like something Jennifer would do. The tone feels off about it. So Herb is trying to explain to these guys, she's not the story. You missed the story. We just gave away 5000 in cash and you missed it. Jennifer keeps posing. And then here comes Tracy again. The real Mr. Pasola enters. No, no, wait a minute. What are you trying to pull here, pal? Mr. Pasola just left. Well, uh, Abdad Pasola. Uh, you want to see my driver's license? And this time Herb confronts him. In the last one, it was Les that confronted the second guy to come in. Carlson looks at Herb and Les, and he's hitting his fist into his hand. And then he, again, he shouts for Andy to help him, and he starts running down the hallway. And now Tracy is there, the real Mr. Pasola. Pasola, talking to the photographers, saying, They won't give me my money. These guys won't give me my money. Kind of a pandemonium out there in the lobby. But the bad guy got away with it. He got out of there with the money. <laughs> we move now to the final scene, which is uh, on our closing credits. We've got a scene nine. And over the closing credits, it's very simple. It is an external shot of Cincinnati, and we are hearing Johnny making an announcement on his show. This is the doctor, and this morning the giant WKRP giveaway continues. Last week I gave away $5,000. This week the prize, an actual tube of lip gloss. That's right. If you're the 47th caller to correctly describe the understory... And it just fades out right there. So obviously, though, they've had to take the tone of the prizes way down, but we don't get a whole lot there. They keep it pretty simple. Going out of the scene, Johnny is talking over A Lot of Love by Nicolette Larson, and that finishes up the Johnny Saves the Day version of our episode. Back up. <laughs> Coming back for the credit scene, we now get this kind of capper scene in the studio in the Johnny has to pay version. Venus enters and Johnny jumps up and, he, and he's borrowing money. He needs to borrow 200. Well, he starts out with this kind of rap about hey, my, complimenting my Venus and kind of sucking my, up my to Venus a little bit. That. Yeah. I hated seeing Johnny begging. Yeah, I didn't like that a lot. And I mean, Venus is a good friend and you know Venus is going to try and help him out. He gives Johnny some money and Johnny's like, oh, thank you, thank you. I mean, it's just kind of weird. So Johnny gets back on the mic and this time we we finished with Nicolette uh, on, the, on the last version. This time he's got Albert King's Born Under a Bad Sign, which I think is probably a statement about Johnny. Uh, and then Johnny... Oh, starts to make a plea to the listeners. Well, he tells everyone about the $10,000 that was given away last week. You might be doing in your head a little minute calculation going, hold it, I thought they gave away 5000 Well, no, remember, the bad guy got away with his five, and they had to give another five to, to the, the real, real Mr. Pasola. Yes. Right, yes. And he then plays an ad of himself asking for money to the Donald R. Pasola Survival Fund to help replace money taken from Johnny's salary to help send Don to auto mechanic school. And it's like, what the heck is yeah, all of this? Yeah. Which further supports the idea that maybe this was not the one that should have aired and it was not... The one that did air. And behind him making this announcement is Vivaldi's Concerto for Violin La Primavera. Yes, yeah, so very, very sad. Highbrow. 
There is a poster on the door. We caught the Black Sabbath 1978 live tour, which the most notable thing about that tour was Van Halen opened. Van Halen, an opening act. So what happened? Why the change to the ending? In Roy Penny's blog post, he quoted a McLean's article that pointed out the discovery of the entirely new unaired episode with the alternate ending that appears on the Shout Factory discs. Roy speculated as to why. He figured somebody didn't want the bad guy to get away with it. Well, it turns out Roy hit the nail on the head. Now, since Casey Petrosky was not there the night of the original taping on December 8th. He didn't realize that a first version of the episode had been shot. He saw what we all saw on January 29th when the episode aired. It varied from his original, but Hugh Wilson later told him why. I, I, frankly, what I had written was, and I never even knew that this is what happened, I had written it so that they give the money to the wrong person, and that was it. My understanding, and I, I believe I got this from Hugh Wilson, uh, was that CBS Standards and Practices said, no, we're not going to let that happen. It's not going to air like that. It has to be poetic justice. So they rewrote the ending so that the guy, in fact, got caught, and Johnny brings the case back in at the end of the show. And that ending, the one we all saw on CBS and throughout the syndication run, would have been the only ending if it hadn't been for Shout Factory's mistake. One thing I didn't tell you is, uh, they, maybe this is where he offered all the apologies, as was where he made an apology. I went to the strike party, the end of the season party, that first year, and um, Howard was not there. Apparently Howard was, you know, a different drummer. You know, he, he didn't have to go along with all that, all this, the Hollywood stuff. Lonnie was there, I got to meet her briefly. Um, got her to sign a picture for Sandy Beach, as a matter of fact, for Don Pesola. Oh. And um, uh, I met, met Gordon Jump, and Gordon and I knew an actress that we had a common friend, Dorothy Lampkin. So I had something to talk to him about a little bit. I think I met Jan. I may have met Tim Reed. I don't know if I met, because um, I mean, I wasn't there during the rehearsals or during the, the taping, so I, I would have probably met the cast then. But uh, so these were, were strangers to me and to them. Uh, an eye to them, I should say. So I don't remember if I met anybody else. I certainly saw the writers there and, and Hugh. Hey, we want to say a big thank you to everyone who helped us with the research on this fascinating episode. Roy Penny for his blog, Jamie Weinman at McLean's for the only mention of this situation in any news publication we were able to find. And of course, the incomparable Casey Petrowski, the episode writer, for taking the time to share his story with us. I'm the nobody in the contest that nobody could win. What's <laughs> that? So, Donna, what's up for next week? Tornado. The staff at WKRP finds themselves in danger when Herb unplugs the teletype machine just as it is receiving a local tornado warning. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of the WKRP cast. If you'd like to watch along, Make sure to check our show notes for information. Got a question, comment, or correction? Let us know about it. Write us, wkrpcast at gmail.com. And remember to please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. May the good news be yours.
the WKRP cast is not endorsed by MTM Enterprises, Shout Factory, or CBS. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. WKRP in Cincinnati, the WKRP logo, and all names, pictures, and audio of WKRP in Cincinnati characters are registered trademarks of MTM, CBS, Shout Factory, or their respective copyright holders. Almost forgot, fellow babies. Booger!